Bonjour. Comment ça va? Ça va bien. Well, it's a pleasure to see you all. I'll switch over to English now for those people who are English speakers. Um, thank you to the worship team. Thank you for bringing us into a, an attitude, an atmosphere, and an appreciation of God's presence. Let's open our time in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for for just your, your presence among us. And as we share this message, as we... We hear from you, Lord. We just pray that you would deepen relationship and deepen our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Today we'll be looking at two parables. The first one is the parable of the two sons. One obeys and one does not. And the second is called the parable of the wicked tenants, taken from Matthew chapter 21. And we'll begin by reading... The parable of the two sons. One obeys and one does not. Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 28. What do you think? Verse 28. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not. He answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not even believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. The background setting of this is the Matthew 21, the commencement of Passion Week. What we say, the lead up to the cross, the final week of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus' authority, as we see in 23 to 27, his authority is once again being challenged when he responds to the chief priests and the elders with these parables. Jesus said, I'm telling you, church leaders, and he was speaking to the chief priests and the elders of the people and the tax, the tax collectors who you think cheat and steal and the women who are prostitutes shall get into heaven before you, spiritual leaders. Jesus said, John the Baptist preached about sin and turning from sin to go to heaven. The tax collectors and the prostitutes listened and they believed. They turned away from their sin, but you did not think you needed to repent from your sin. Very damning comment that he made to this group of people. The evidence of true belief is a turning away from your sin in repentance, a changing a direction of following sin and a repentant change of heart and mind to go in a different direction. We read in the Bible that demons and the devils believe, yet they believe without repentance. You do not believe what John the Baptist preached. The Jewish church leaders never accepted Jesus as Messiah and God. Therefore, their disbelief enabled their continuing practice of sin 
And they practiced the ultimate sin, which was rejection of Jesus. The only one who can forgive sins. If you do not believe in Him, you have no forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the one who died and took our punishment for sin. He is the only one who can give forgiveness. True forgiveness. The one son in the story did what the father asked. He did not do it at first, but later he realized. He thought about it. He went away and considered it. He considered, what should I do? And he repented and went and did what the father asked. One, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Okay, I need to. And he went. Genuine repentance takes time. For the weight of sin to settle in. It's not a casual thing. The weight of sin must settle in. Matthew 11.28, very well-known verse says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You must become wearied of your sin. You must experience what it is to be heavy laden to really appreciate what sin is. And then at that point, repentance has value. You start to realize that I need to shed this sin. And the only one who can do that is the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the first son showed evidence of true belief by turning away from his sin. The word repent means to turn. It's actually a verb implying there's some action going on here to turn and go the other way. The other son in the story says the words that he would do what the father asked, but then he went his own way. Some people may be like that. They say they love God. They say they believe in the Bible. But they ignore God. Even some go to church. But they may live, live just in the way that they want to. And they do not obey what Jesus has taught. A lot say, but a lot fewer do. James says about true faith, he says, the works of the kingdom, in other words, stepping out in faith, is verification of true faith. Faith without works is dead. James 2, verse 26. Stepping out in faith. Not just any works. Works of the kingdom that flow from a heart that wants to be a servant of Jesus. Not calling what I'm doing work. Or I'm ticking a box and saying, this is work for Jesus. No. It's a privilege to serve Him. It's a privilege to be a servant of Jesus Christ. That's a privilege. It's not work. The second parable we have today, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21, 33-45. And it's in fact related to the first parable. The first parable does not tell why the second son said he would go to the vineyard, but he doesn't go. That would be the first question I'd ask. 
You said you'd come. You didn't. Tell me why you didn't show up. Let's hear it. I want to know why. The second parable gives us some insight as to what might have been going on in the mind of the second son. Jesus is intentional about causing us to think deeper. Open our hearts and minds. Think and dig deeper. As Jim Melnick mentioned a couple of weeks ago, more like a couple of months ago, the definition he gave us as a parable has the idea that the parable should tease us into active thought. I like to think of it as should stir our thinking. Stirring causes prior separations to merge. Think about anything. It all seems to call them up in layers. But when you stir it, barriers disappear. Everything that was separated now merges. And new possibilities start to become evident. Jesus said in Matthew 28, or 21-28, it starts with the phrase, what do you think? Not, tell me what's popular out there. Or, what are your friends saying? Or, what is the socially accepted response to this? No, he says, what do you think? Jesus is saying, I expect you to think and reason together. You, creation mankind, are the ones I gave capacity for deep thinking. When I created your person, I gave you big brains. Not little pitsqueak ones. I gave you big brains. I gave you curiosity and I also gave you 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. You have the mind of God. Capacity to hear and to comprehend the voice of the Holy Spirit. You have the mind of God that He may instruct you. That He may reveal Himself to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord is prompting, what is happening in that space, in that mind, as I share this parable? Not the atypical male response to the female question, what are you thinking? And the guy goes, uh, nothing. No, Jesus said, I want you to switch on. I want you to internalize what I'm saying. Jesus tells a parable of the wicked tenants. Define wicked. Evil or morally wrong. Not, wow, that is so wicked. Because the wicked tenant is a lot of things, but he is not cool. This is not a cool wicked. This is a morally or evil type of wicked. It's important to note in this particular parable, this is another of Jesus' parables of judgment that shakes the audience out of their lethargy, out of their complacency, out of their dullness. The parables are divided up, or can be divided up, into several groupings. We have our parables of the kingdom. We have our parables of salvation. 
We have parables of wisdom. We have parables of Christian life. And we have parables of judgment. This particular parable falls into the parable of judgment. The parable of the wicked trustee tells how men who have been selected, presumably, to manage a vineyard and its owner, and for its owners mistreat these servants and eventually kill the son. The interpretation of the characters in the parable to the Jewish audience are understood as the father is God in the parable. The son is Jesus, Messiah, although the chief priests and the elders may not have accepted him as Messiah. He is seen as that, and the servants are the prophets. So as we think about the parable, the story shows that sinful men that are so hardened in their hatred of all others, including God, that they murder God's servants and his son, and would naturally murder God himself if he was, in fact, in their grasp. What are the two greatest commandments? Trevor shared them recently. In his message on the Good Samaritan, we read, The first is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Trevor spoke of these commandments and he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. We understand from that particular parable, love is also a verb. Its implied action shows that compassion and mercy towards others, loving others that are considered to be our neighbors, including our enemies. Based on this story, the man in his sinful and hardened state does precisely the opposite. You could say that he hates the Lord, his God, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind. He hates his neighbor as he hates himself. His hatred is verified by actions towards others. His violence towards other people, which is the opposite of love. Hatred may be acted out in violent opposition towards other people, or it may be acted out in mere indifference. I couldn't care less what happens to you or you or you. It's the opposite of love, the things we see. When Jesus began his story by telling how a landowner planted the vineyard, he put a wall around it, built a wine press, and built a watchtower. He was pressing the parable home upon his Jewish audience. Israel had been the vine of God and everything Jesus had said, and that was the opening to have been applied to Israel in the Old Testament. They understood themselves as being the vine. An example of that is in Isaiah. We read, My beloved has a vineyard and on a very fertile hill. He has dug it and cleared it of stones and planted with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed it out in a wine vat. We have examples of that in Jeremiah and also in Ezekiel, of where Israel is considered to be the vine or the vineyard. That imagery was well known to Christ's hearers. So when he told the story of the landowner, the vineyard, there could be no doubt in their minds he was speaking of them. And when he, he addressed 
his questions, his comments to the chief priests and the elders, they had no doubt he was referring this parable to those who had responsibility for their spiritual development. Because he asked the leaders, he said, which of the sons has obeyed the father? The leaders said, the first son has obeyed the father. Jesus said, I'm telling you, leaders, church leaders, spiritual leaders, and tax collectors, the tax collectors who you think cheat and steal and women who are prostitutes shall get into heaven before you. And when we read this parable, it's heavily immersed in the Jewish culture. And we somehow think, well, that applies to them. You know, that was close. It's a parable of judgment. doesn't really apply to me. But if that's the way that we interpreted Jesus' remarks, we are misleading him utterly. The story is told in a way that he was, because he was speaking to Jews at the time. But he would have made it equally pointed if he was telling it to us. He might have used another image. We might not know what that means. He might have just said, we too, Gentiles, may be compared to the vines as Israel was. We could interpret the parable as it applies to us by thinking he has not planted us believers in the land of Canada. Canada. Has he not planted us in the land of Canada like the vineyard in Israel? Has he not fenced us in with protection, hedged us with the Holy Spirit? Has he not watered and cared for us, given us spiritual food and life? Has he not built a watchtower? his ministry for us and the work to care for it. Of course, he's done all those things. Yet we have not been faithful any more than Israel has been faithful. In speaking to his Jewish audience, Jesus focused on the way God's servants had been and would be treated by his audience and beyond. In that, he was speaking both historically but also prophetically. His Jewish audience would have were well aware of their history in which they understood that prophets of the Old, time, Old Testament were killed for their faith. When they stepped out and they spoke out, they were often putting their life in danger. We read the persecuted church every week. And we understand that whether you are part of this period of Old Testament history, or whether you're in the 20th century, If you live in India, or China, or Sri Lanka, or any of these countries of which we we read about and we pray about each week, we realize that the, the, the application of this particular parable is as applicable today as it is to those people years ago. We speak of Jesus as this meek and mild Savior. We refer to him as the embodiment of love. We refer to his many works of healing the sick, raising the dead, curing lepers. And those descriptions are all true. He was all of those things. But was he loved for it? On the contrary, he was hated. Because while he was doing all of those good things, he was also representing God in his trueness. People hated him 
because of his godlike characteristics. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the depth, death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. When we read that verse, most of us, we take a text and we focus on the good part. In this case, on the wonder of the death of Christ on our behalf and being reconciled to God. And that's true. We've been reconciled to God. We don't usually focus on our identification as the enemies of God. Why? Because that's too close to the truth. And the appropriate response to that position before God is heartfelt repentance. As we examine ourselves and realize we've come from a position where we're truly enemies of God. Yes, Lord, I was your enemy and I acted like it. And so, from that position, we have honesty, openness, and transparency. Fern shared this morning in an open and honest and transparent heart. And so, that is our position before God. He sees us in that way as well. Repentance is like the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Repentance is a response to the judging of thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. That is very difficult to be honest and open before God, but it is necessary. He takes us through repentance so we know we need a Savior. Before becoming a Christian, we were enemies in several ways, to name a few. We were enemies in our judgment, of course, our judgment of God, our judgment of ourselves and other people. We're enemies in our will. We only really had one will, and that was our own will. We're enemies, of course, in our practice, because our practice was really driven by our selfishness. What would you say if Jesus asked the question, to you or to me, what do you think the owner of the vineyard should do? Unless we were absolutely hypocritical, we would answer as the leaders of Jesus, they said. And thus, likewise, we render judgment upon ourselves like they did. Here in the Lord's own judgment, after listening to what men of his time thought should be done, he concluded, Have you never really read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in your eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. And the one who falls in a stone will be broken to pieces. 
and when if anyone if it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In conclusion, three points emerge from this parable. The parable contains, first of all, our greatest privilege. And our greatest privilege is to have the kingdom of God entrusted to us. To be offered the kingdom of God. That is what happens when the kingdom of God is preached. When it's placed in our grasp for receiving, feeding, and entering into. The parable contains our greatest sin. The greatest sin is to reject that kingdom, which is to reject Jesus. Jesus did not come that he might be rejected and killed. He says, I come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. If we reject his claims above all, we reject his lordship. And we also bring condemnation onto our lives. And the parable contains our greatest doom. The greatest doom is to be crushed by the kingdom of that very Christ who is offered to us in salvation. When Jesus refers to being crushed by this stone, he may be referring to the vision Nebuchadnezzar had in the days of the prophet Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in which he saw a statue representing the four worldly kingdoms. At the end of the vision, a stone came and struck the statue grind it to pieces. Then the stone became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone is Christ. So Jesus is saying to us and the people of His day, there's really two decisions to make. You can be part of the kingdom and thus grow up with me in the kingdom as Lord and Savior, filling the world. Or, you can stand against that kingdom and be broken. The judgment of God is not to be taken lightly because God, of course, is not to be taken lightly. The God who offers salvation now is the God who will judge in righteousness hereafter. You will not have Him as Savior, as we know now. The day of grace, you will have Him as your judge and stand before Him in the final throne judgment. Now is the day of grace. Now is the day of grace. It's wonderful grace. As we reflect on the magnitude of this parable. This parable is very sobering. It's reached into you. It's reached into your heart. It's perhaps opened up parts of you that you say, you know what? I'm guilty of a lot of things in my life. There's nothing that I know that I'm righteous or holy after. But God loves me through that. And He's died for me. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come now. Even as He spoke these words in a parable, in the final week leading up to His crucifixion, the Lord Jesus was on his way to the cross to die for those who would receive him and also for those who would reject him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, 
We thank You, Lord, for, for Your revelation of Yourself to us. We thank You that You are a God who does not hold back. You do not hide the things that we need to know and we need to hear. You speak truth and You speak it in a way that is open and honest and transparent to us. May our hearts take these things and may You draw us closer to Yourself as a result of the Word of God, the parables, whether they be parables of uplifting salvation or the kingdom or whether they be parables of, of judgment, Lord. May those truths impact upon us. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. I think we're about out of time, so we won't ask Vicky to come up.